Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we are continuing our sermon series called Faithful to the Finish out of Second Peter. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to Second Peter chapter 2. This morning we're talking about God's warning. In preparation for this message, I started to think about ways in our culture we are warned of danger. I am from central Kansas. A very familiar warning sign in central Kansas is what you see on your screen right now. It is a tornado siren that warns people that there are tornadoes uh, approaching or are in the area. Lived in Kansas for 20 years, never lived through a tornado, did tornado drills in school every week of my academic life. Moved to Searcy, Arkansas within the first two years of living there. I lived through a tornado. There are no tornado sirens in Searcy, Arkansas. Moved down to Monroe, West Monroe area. Within two years of moving down to Monroe, West Monroe, I lived through a tornado and there are no tornado warnings or sirens in this area. So... Right. The, the, the moral of that story is don't live anywhere near me because the tornadoes are following me geographically <laughs> all over the United States. Now, we don't have uh, tornado warnings down here, but we do have heat advisory warnings. Can I get a testimony this morning? Can I get a witness? We are in the middle of a heat advisory warnings right now. It is so sweet. It's like an oven outside. Amen. Man, some of you are still too heat exhausted to really even say amen to that. Seriously, I was up in my attic for like 45 seconds yesterday, and it was, I almost did not make it out of my attic in the 30 seconds that I was up there. So incredibly hot. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, is about to give us a warning. And I think it is a heat advisory warning, and he is sounding the alarm, and the heat are the fires of hell. And we're, this is a church that believes Scripture and teaches a literal hell that is actually going to be a place of torment. John 16, when the rich man and Lazarus pass away, the rich man goes to hell and is literally tormented by the flames in hell. Peter's been talking to us about false teachers and their destruction and ultimately their destiny, which will be hell, the fires of hell. And that will be our destiny to the degree we follow after false teaching or cultural ideology that doesn't correspond with the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pick up the story. Let's pick up our text in 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 10. The Bible says this. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings, yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when, being judgment on them, when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they don't understand. They're like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable and they are experts in greed, an accursed brood. The first thing Peter wants us to understand is the status of 
of both the false teachers and the people who follow after their teaching. Their status is judgment. Now, what is it that these people are doing that destines them for judgment? They're wandering around acting cluelessly and out of ignorance. He says, like unreasoning animals, these teachers and the people that follow them are creatures of instinct. Here's the reality, friend, that anytime you are behaving instinctually, outside of what you know to be intellectually good and right and true, outside of those things which correspond with Scripture, you are behaving ignorantly. And ignorance is a, is a major sign of false teachers and the followers of the false teachers. Peter's audience would have recognized these false teachers as being ignorant. Likely they're unstable, saying things to cater to particular crowds at particular times over particular ideas. They shift like the wind. They don't have any core teaching upon which to base all their philosophies. They're unreasoning and they're instinctual. These methods lead to meaninglessness in life. False teachers always lure people away with instinctual teaching that potentially appeals to a given situation, but ultimately the destiny of that teaching is meaninglessness. These false teachers will be paid back with harm. Have you ever watched the news and seen a tragedy committed or somebody that's deliberately teaching things that you know instinctively, intuitively, based on Scripture, are absolutely in direct contrast with the truths of God's Word? Have you ever wondered if they'll be paid back? Think about our brothers in Lafayette, Louisiana. Was your heart not stricken with grief at the tragedy that was felt there? Senseless acts of violence and for what? And our hearts cry out to God at times of violence or tragedy or when people propagate ideas that are in contrast to Scripture. And lots of us find ourselves moved to the point of asking God, God, why? When? How will these people be punished? And sometimes in our own life we're moved to to a place of desiring vengeance because of wrongs that have been committed to us. Peter intends for his audience to understand that the false teachers and those who follow after their teaching that causes misery and destruction will be paid back. And it will be paid back by a just God who delivers a much more appropriate punishment than you or I ever could. This is why we can pray to our Father when we feel grief or pain over tragedy like, like the Lafayette shooting. And we can ask God to comfort those families. And we can also ask God for justice to be done on the perpetrators according to His sovereign plan. Paul says in Romans 12 that we as a church, in verse 17, should not repay anyone for evil. But should be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as depends on you, church, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge and I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, then, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Church, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And in the wake of such tragedy, how can we live like that? We live like this knowing that God will deliver justice. 
There will be harm paid to these false teachers specifically because they're immersed in sin. They literally never stop sinning. And right here in 2 Peter chapter 2, I think Peter shares with us the process of becoming completely immersed in sin. Look at verse 13. He says, These false teachers and those who follow their teaching carouse around in broad daylight. The first step on the pathway of becoming immersed in sin, of never stopping to sin, is to convince yourself that what you're doing is okay, and then you stop trying to hide it because you've so convinced your own self of your rightness. Then you even flaunt it around in broad daylight and probably would condemn those who judge you or would impose their views on you. These false teachers not only caroused around in broad daylight, but they started reveling in their pleasure. Not only do you first have to convince yourself of what you're doing and and that it's okay, secondly, you pretend to find joy in the sinful activity you're engaging in. The third step to that, these guys, the false teachers and those who followed them had eyes full of adultery. Step three to becoming immersed in sin is to look for more ways to enhance the sinful pleasure you're engaging in. We know from the text that Peter is emphasizing sexual immorality. The false teachers literally had eyes of adultery. They were constantly looking around for new sinful opportunities to enhance existing sinful behavior. In verse 14, he says these people literally never stop sinning. The fourth step to losing yourself to sin is that the shame and misery of the sin pushes you further away from the Lord Jesus Christ and from the truth and deeper into the sinful activity that you're engaging in such that it's the only thing you have to live for. It becomes your identity. And in verse 14, what these people do have been totally immersed into sin, lost in sin, that never stop sinning, is they seduce others. It seems certainly to be true that misery loves company. Finally, last step to immersion in sin is to recruit others into being as miserable as you, but marketing your own misery as freedom and pleasure. I think if we're talking about sexual immorality, most of us would assume that that's far removed from me. I would never carouse around in broad daylight and revel in my pleasure and have eyes full of adultery. But what if we shifted a little bit and started talking about someone who maybe had hurt you that you were unwilling to forgive? Maybe in broad daylight you started to be condescending towards that person or slanderous towards that person and speak poorly of them in the community. And maybe you reveled in the pleasure of knowing that you were delivering unto them some of the same measure of pain that they had delivered unto you. And your eyes became full of your awareness of opportunities to slander that individual. And you never stop slandering or thinking poorly. And pretty soon you slowly start to recruit others into slandering that individual or slandering the individuals that had hurt them. And now we see how even in our own lives, some of the little things that we do that are sinful slowly and steadily are creeping into our lives and establishing themselves as an authority and an influence in our day-to-day behavior. This is the behavior of the false teachers and those who follow them. In verse 15, Peter picks up the story. These people have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. 
But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words. And by appealing to lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For, quote, people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. The status of the false teachers and those who follow after them is judgment. The situation of the false teachers and those who follow after them is slavery. What are they enslaved to? Ultimately, they're enslaved to their passion. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13 that you should enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Truly the way to fulfilling earthly pleasure and passion, the way of lust, the way of your flesh is a wide way that's easy to travel down. And the way of righteousness, the way of the cross, the way of self-control, self-denial, self-sacrifice, and self-discipline is certainly much more narrow and difficult to travel down. The false teachers in Peter's day had decided they were going to throw restraint to the side and follow after whatever felt good in the moment and was easy to acquire. There are so many of us living today that follow after these same pursuits only to realize the emptiness and slavery that the teachers in Peter's day found themselves in the midst of. They left the straight way and they started following the way of lust, which was appealing to them and easy to become ensnared by. This appeal they used to appeal to those around them in the community. Remember, misery does love company, and cultures throughout time have functioned in this same capacity. Those things that are easy, those things that are cheap to acquire, and those things you can get quickly have been the things consistently, time and time again, through the ages, that have turned God's people away from truth and immersed them into sinful activity. Ultimately, all these types of passions and lusts are based on promises which are empty. I myself have lived in the middle of empty promises for a long time. I'm 10 years sober from drugs and alcohol, 11 this December, but for a long time in my life, praise God. There was a long time where I pursued after the empty promises of the drug culture. Drugs always said they'd be the next fix or the right way or relieve me of my problems. And what I found every single time I pursued after drugs and alcohol or sexual immorality or lust or any other type of any of the million sins I committed is that they all led to the same doorway. Misery, isolation, and despair. This is the illusion of the promises made by the world. They always end in the same doorway. Emptiness, isolation, and desperation. They ultimately make us prisoners Of our own sin. Literally slaves to our own depravity. The truth is we're all slaves. Jesus says in John 8.34, Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And isn't it true we're all sinners? The crux of that whole matter is this. Whether or not we've been immersed into Christ and now are joined to the Lord Jesus, a slave to Him and to righteousness, 
or whether or not we've not been immersed into the Lord Jesus Christ and we're a slave to our lusts and the cultural passions in which we exist. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 6.16. He says, Don't you know, friend, that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. In the same way that there are two roads, one narrow leading to life and one wide leading to death, there are two types of slavery. One slavery leads to death as well. It's the, it's the slavery of the world, of our own sin, of our own depravity. And to the degree we allow ourselves to be ensnared by and enslaved to our own sin and our own passion, we'll experience not just misery in this life, but destruction and, and pain and torment in the next. But if we'll enslave ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ by obedience to His righteousness, then we find ourselves on the narrow way which is paved with blessings in this life and an eternity in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ in the next. And there can be no greater blessing than that. But so often we're too materialistic and we think too much in the right here and right now and the allure of heaven loses its effect on our lives. Certainly these false teachers had lost sight of eternity in the wake of what is temporary. In verse 20, Peter picks up the story again. He says, If these people have escaped corruption by the world, knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and overcome, they're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. The status of these false teachers, friends, is judgment. For the harm they inflicted on the people of God, they will be paid back harm. The situation of the false teachers and those who followed them was slavery. We're all slaves. It's simply a matter of who we choose to enslave ourselves to. The separation of the false teachers is the reality that they have fallen away. These section, this section of Scripture is certainly referring to individuals who were saved. Pick up verse 20. They had escaped corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 21. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. These were teachers who had known the way of righteousness and who had escaped corruption of the world. And they'd fallen back into corruption and thus been overcome. Peter's intent here in his d- desire is to emphasize reality. Peter's intent here and desire is to emphasize reality. Here it is, friends. You cannot enter into corruption without being ensnared and consequently overcome. Let me say that again. You cannot enter into corruption without being ensnared and consequently overcome. What do you mean, Trent? What I mean is don't flirt with the things of this world or you will be overcome by them. Do not flirt, friend, with the things of this world or you will be ensnared and consequently overcome by them. When you are immersed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are pledging 
to abstain from the sickness of the sin in this culture and of the world in which we live and to live an obedient, self-disciplined, sacrificial life in line with the life and teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you entertain the world or cultural passions or lust, you will be entangled and ensnared again in those things. There are essentially three views on this, and I haven't taken a position and I intend to. The first view of whether or not you can lose your salvation is called perseverance of the saints. This is what we call in a common vernacular eternal security. The truth about this is that people would view this as being something that once God bestows salvation upon a human being, they can no longer fall away from it. A second view of this is called apostasy. This is the view that while it's true you can lose your salvation... It's impossible to gain it back. I'm going to read a couple of scriptures found in Hebrews for you. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4 through 7 says this. It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goods of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back again to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 27. The Bible says this, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. The third view, different from apostasy and eternal security, is the idea of repeat regenerationalism. We can lose salvation, but God can save to the uttermost and His mercy can be bestowed upon anyone. So if I had to say where I fell, it would be somewhere between repeat regeneration and apostasy. It seems clear to me in Scripture, based on what we read in 2 Peter, that salvation can be lost. It also seems clear to me that God can save whomever He should choose, and I wouldn't be one to limit God's capacity to save anybody. So what is the, what is the intent here of, of Peter's monologue, of his writing? Is it so that we could develop views on the perseverance of the saints and then divide over it and become contentious and let culture overrule the church and false teachers run rampant in the world, turning God's people away from truth? Lord forbid... The reality is Peter intends to warn us that knowledge comes and freedom comes by knowing the knower of everything, the Lord Jesus Christ, through familiarizing ourselves so much with truth that we can immediately spot a lie for what it is. And the truth about foolishness, friend, is this, that those of us who know truth and choose to not do it are like a dog eating its own vomit. There could be nothing more disgusting or repulsive than that. And I think too often in our culture we lose the the reality of how disgusting and repulsive it should make us feel when we know the way that is good and right and true and decide in our own personal lives not to live that way out in our relationships, in our day-to-day activities, and in our thought life. We allow culture and false teachers and pressure from peers and social groups to influence our behavior away from what's true and towards what's easy, the wide and simple way. So what's the Apostle's advice if we were to summarize this whole teaching? 
The first thing I think he intends for us to understand today is that there are consequences to your behavior, friends. Some of you at one time were on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been given victory over things like addiction or affairs or divorce or even granted healing from physical ailments. And you felt the power of God coursing through you and transforming your life. And you acted foolishly. And decided not to believe the reality that all, consequ- all behavior has consequence. And that the Bible is true that sin pays a wage. And the ultimate wages of sin is death. And some of you have been living a life as a dead man or woman following after foolishness and the things of this world, I'm, I'm telling you, the consequence you will experience will be miserable. And Peter intends for you to understand this is a heat advisory warning that's in effect for your life. You're heading towards a destination that is even hotter than northeast Louisiana in July. The second thing I think Peter intends for you to understand is that God in His sovereignty allows you to choose what your consequences are. God is truly a gentleman. He never ravishes or forces himself upon anyone. He constantly tries to woo his children. And he wishes to woo all who are across the face of this earth. Perhaps you're one who's sacrificed traveling the narrow way for the wide gate. Perhaps you're one who was enslaved to the Lord Jesus Christ and now has become corrupt again and is enslaved again in in the ways of the world. Perhaps you're one who's on the fence, battling and struggling and trying to discern which direction to head. I want you to know that God, like a perfect gentleman, is pursuing you. And this morning He's asking you to turn towards Him. I don't know what the need is in your life this morning, friend, or what struggle has beset you, but I know that there is an answer and His name is Jesus. My prayer this morning for you will be you take the opportunity when we have our response time after this prayer to address your needs and concerns before this church family in the presence of God. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you so much for your word and for the power of your Holy Spirit to transform lives. God, I thank you for this heat advisory warning we find in 2 Peter chapter 2 that advises us to stay on the narrow way and to relinquish any of our infatuation we have with this life or this culture. If there are any who have been led astray through corruption, I ask that you would renew their strength and commitment to you. God, if there are any on the fence, I ask that you would give them discernment and direction And for those who are steadfast in their commitment, I ask for a renewed sense of resolve to follow after you and deny themselves. Thanks so much for a Bible-believing church. And thank you so much for the mercy of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.